All right. Hey, have you ever lost something? Right? You know, some of you, you're, you're thinking, man, I've almost lost something this morning with these kids, getting them ready for Easter Sunday. Right? I saw some of the parents walk in here, and they were like, if I have to yell at my kids one more time to get their shoes on a Sunday morning, we're just going to be that weird family that shows up everywhere barefoot. <laughs> I saw that in your faces. Now listen, hey, my mom is living with us, uh, Christina and I, and, and um, she has lost like 10 canes since she moved in last fall. Right, for example, a couple weeks ago, we went to the doctors, I'm with her, we're walking out, we get in the car, we drive all the way home, and we get home, we walk in, and she says, uh-oh, I think we need to go back. I said, back for what? She said, I left my cane there. Like, how can you forget a cane? How did you get back to the car without your cane? Right, this, is, this is getting out of hand. It's like 10 canes in. We're going to go broke buying canes. Now, here's another one. Have you ever walked into a room looking for something only to lose the reason that you walked into that room in the first place? Right? You're like, why did I come in here? Right, losing things is a part of everyday life. Listen, if we are honest, we're, we're going to lose things. No matter how organized we think we are, no matter how disciplined we think we are, there's just going to be some lost things in our lives. So I, I did a little digging, and I found a recent study of the most common items that go missing in our homes. Now, they really will study anything, won't they? But here's the list. Here's the list. TV remotes, all right? car, house keys, wallet, purse, shoes, glasses. We found a pair of glasses out at the picnic table this morning. Right? And can you guess the number one thing that's lost in your home? Phones. All right? Cell phones. They used to be tied to the wall. We couldn't lose them unless you know, like a tornado came through. But now we lose them all the time. If it was the Keeney household, if it was my household, we would put spoons up there for, for some weird reason. Like, we have all of our other silverware, but like two spoons. Right? We, we just magically lose spoons. Now, this study also went on to say that the average person, us, right here, will spend, get this, two and a half days a year looking for misplaced items. Think about that. That's nearly half of a work week looking for missing items. I mean, can, can you imagine telling your boss you need a couple days off to find your shoes? Right? No one does that unless it's Kirsten, right? I lost something. I'll be in late. Right? Can you imagine saying that to your boss. And that's not all of it. Listen to this. The same study found that Americans collectively spend a whopping $2.7 billion, billion every year on replacing items that they cannot find. Replacing those little items on that list, mostly. Now, the, the study did not say how much of that money is a wash because as soon as you return home from buying the item to replace it, you find the item that was originally lost in the first place. But again, I think it's safe to say even the most organized of us are still losing things. It's taking our time, our money, 
and our energy. And that's just the material things that we lose, isn't it? Right? Have you ever lost something that was not so physical? Right? Something like, like hope. Have you ever lost hope? And we got a couple, like this is going to be deep, but it's not. Right? My wife, Christina, grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, the daughter of a, of a football coach. And her whole life, she's been rooting for the poor, the pathetic, the sad Cincinnati Bengals, right? And then all of a sudden, like two seasons ago, what do they do? They, they got really good. Out of nowhere, they got good. And she walked around saying things like, I knew it. I knew they would eventually be good. I just knew it. I never lost hope that they were going to be good. And I swear, every game of that playoff season, I was sure. I was sure that the Bengals were going to lose. And every game, Christina, she never lost hope. She believed, and they kept winning, kept winning all the way to the Super Bowl two, two years ago. Now, Christina, she was, she was so excited. She even bought a new shirt for the game. It said this. It said, I was a Cincinnati fan before it was cool. She was proud of it. She even wore it to church on Sunday. She was so pumped. She believed with all of her heart that the Bengals were going to win the Super Bowl. And I wish that you could have seen her watching the game. Right, she, she was jumping up and down. She was yelling at the TV. She was hiding her face when things didn't go well. Like she was putting our dog Barton in a chokehold if things weren't going well, like squeezing him. And it was near the end of the game, and the score was 23 to 20. The Bengals were down by three. And she believed with all of her heart that those poor little orange and black striped guys would pull out another miracle win like they've been doing all season. And I wish you could have seen her. She was standing two feet away from the TV, pacing back and forth because this was it. All of her hope was going to finally pay off. It was fourth and one. They just needed to get that first down to keep the game alive. Joe Burrow, the quarterback of the Bengals, he steps back. He, he throws the ball. Christina holds her breath, and the pass is incomplete. Incomplete. Right? My sweet, sweet wife turned around, looked at me, and tears just started rolling down her 35-year-old face. It was simultaneously the saddest and the cutest thing I've ever seen. There was still time left on the clock. A miracle could have theoretically happened, right? But Christina knew it probably wouldn't. She was actually finally starting to lose hope. No hope. Have you ever been in a situation like this? Right? A situation where your back is up against the wall, and the clock is winding down, it's the bottom of the ninth, and the batter has the full count. And now a real situation, though, not just one with sports. Right? Have you ever been in a situation where all you could think was this? Man, it is not looking good. It's not looking good, but it's not over yet. <laughs> Hopefully. It's not looking good, but, but at least it's not over yet, hopefully. Right? Your, your situation may be like Christina's and not super serious, or it may be life-changing. Right? Maybe, maybe you got that diagnosis that you hoped would never happen, and you're thinking, it's not looking good, but it's not over yet. 
And maybe, maybe you got passed up for that promotion again. You're thinking, ah, it's not over yet. But it's not looking good either. Maybe the, the doctor told you that the fertility treatments wouldn't work anymore. Maybe your wife said, this is it. This is your last chance. And maybe your kid slammed the door again and there hasn't been a day of peace in your home and you can't remember how long it's been since there was peace in your home. And you're thinking, man, it's not looking good, but it's, at least it's not over yet, hopefully, right? And that's how we say it. Oh, hopefully it's not over yet. Right? Maybe the, the thoughts in your head are getting louder and louder and you don't know how much longer you can take the anxiety, the depression, or both. And all you can think is this. It's not looking good. It's not looking good. But I really hope it's not over yet. There's just a little bit there. Right? Just a, a little bit that we can hold on to. Maybe, maybe if you're really honest with yourself, you don't even have the hope anymore. You're like, forget that. I can't even hang on to the bottom of the rope. It's not even there. There is no hope. It really seems like there's no way out of this thing, of this hole, of this debt, of this diagnosis, of this, of this situation. Whatever it is, it's just, uh, there's nothing to hold on to. I'm just a walking shell of a person. So what do we do when most, and if not all, our hope is lost? It's gone, like a flash in the pan. Well, well, I think we can look to another team, and not the Bengals, because they're awful. I think we can look to another team, a different team who was definitely down and out. A team that seemed to be at the end of their hope, kind of just pinching the end of that, that hope rope, right? just barely hanging on. And I like to call them, not to Jesus juke anyone, Team Jesus. Right? So turn with me to the book of John in your Bibles, and we'll be in the 18th chapter. Right? Now, John is in the New Testament of your Bible. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. So you have the Old Testament, which is the first half of the Bible, the New Testament, which is the shorter second half of the Bible, and it's the fourth book in there. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to use the Bibles that are in the seats in front of you, and you can take those with you. They are free for you to have, to use, to take, to give away. They are for you, so please take one. Right? There, there's something special about opening a Bible a physical Bible, and reading together as one group. So pull out that Bible, uh, use the table of contents if you have to, and today we'll be in John chapter 18. Now 18 is the big number that you're going to see in the Bible there. So find the book of John, find the big 18, and that is where we are going to be this morning. All right, but while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of uh, context to where we are in the, the life of Jesus and his team in this, in this story. All right, so, so Coach Jesus, right, Coach Jesus and his now only uh, 11 disciples, the first football team, if you will, they're not looking good. Right? Jesus had been turned over to the authorities by a former member of their team for, for 30 pieces of silver. Like right? The guy entered the transfer portal. And in the hustle of the turnover, one of Jesus' team cuts off the ear of one of the arresting officers. And to the surprise of Jesus' disciples, Jesus stops them from fighting. 
He, he, uh, he heals the soldier, and he goes willingly to the, to the court. He, he, he just goes with them. And as he stands in front of the religious leaders, he's able to give his defense. But no matter what defense Jesus gives to the officials, well, it's not looking good. Right? But, but the team is hoping that it is not over yet. They're losing hope, but they're still a little bit there. Right? The, the, the religious officials have decided Jesus needs to be punished, so they bring Jesus to the governor of Jerusalem, a man named Pilate, and, and, and say, you got to do something about this guy. Pilate, you got to do something about this Jesus. So let's look at verses 29 and verses 30. That's the little numbers there in John chapter 18. It says, so Pilate, <clears throat> excuse me. So <clears throat> Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Right? Keep, your, keep your finger there for just a moment because I think this is absolutely hilarious. Right? The, the officials, they, they bring Jesus to Pilate and he wants to get all the information about what's going on and why he should take care of this Jesus guy. He's doing his due diligence. So Pilate asks a simple question. What did this man do? What did this man do? And the religious leaders give him a non-answer. Right? They, they completely evade the question. Right? You've ever experienced this with your kids? You know, you know what I'm talking about? You walk into the kitchen and you notice it's like trashed absolute mess and you ask what happened in this kitchen what what happened in here and you get you get this answer it wasn't me right? it wasn't me like the song right now that's not what i asked but okay now i know who did whatever happened in here right pilot asks what did jesus do and the religious leaders say well we wouldn't have brought him here if he didn't do anything wrong right Okay, elaborate. All right, so let's read on Pilate's response to this non-answer, uh, verses 31 through 32. Thank you. It says this, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. He's like, hey, you guys don't know what's going on. Just take him. All right, judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. All right, keep your finger right there. All right, if, if I'm team Jesus, or if I'm one of the disciples, one of the followers of Jesus at this moment, uh, this is my first glimpse of hope, of real hope, of actually kind of climbing up that rope a little bit. Right? Pilate does not seem to be on board with this whole plan. He's like, this is ridiculous. Right? Get, this, get this away from me. Right? And the religious leaders can't seem to do anything to hurt Jesus. So maybe we might just have a way out of this moment. Right? But, but skip down to the second half of verse 38 and let's see, see what it says here. 
because this is interesting. It says this, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. This is the season we are in. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, know this man, not him, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Right? Just when, when, when Team Jesus thought Pilate might give us an out and just say, hey, release him, you guys are being ridiculous, he puts the life of Jesus in the hands of an angry mob. And I'm just saying, if we've learned anything in the last couple years, is that an angry mob usually doesn't make the right decision. And this group, they're no different. They chose this robber, some translations say murderer, over Jesus who had done nothing wrong. They chose Barabbas over Jesus. <laughs> the same crowd who, who the, the Sunday before was shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, chose choosing Barabbas now. <laughs> so hope is fading fast. Hope is, is fading fast. And then in chapter 19, we read this, verses 16 through 18. Simply says, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. All right, Pilate did that. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bringing his own cross to the place called the, the place of the skull. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side of Jesus between them. And while he was up there on the cross, I want you to remember that feeling you had when your team, when you were completely out of the game. You got that diagnosis. You lost your significant other. When you got that bad news from the doctor, when you... Got looked over for that promotion and you didn't know if you could keep making ends meet. Or your wife said, this is it. It's over. That, that, whatever it is, that complete feeling of hopelessness. This is the feeling of those disciples. Those original followers of Jesus. You see, they, they don't have the benefit that we have of knowing the whole story. They're in the, the middle of the pain, in the, the middle of the confusion and, and the questions, in the middle of watching their teacher, their leader, their buddy, die in the most horrible way possible. Hung on a cross, nailed to it. Suffocation is how they died. It could take days. They lose their strength to hold them up to fill their lungs as they hang there. They are no longer saying things are looking good, but things aren't over yet. They're not saying that trash. They're saying, well, it's over. This is it. There is no hope. It's done. It's finished. Even Jesus said that, right? They didn't understand the context. Now, it reminds me of a, a story I once read about the great football coach Vince Lombardi and one of his players. 
uh, interaction between Lombardi and one of his players that he had. And the story goes like this. It says, during a, a practice session for the Green Bay Packers, things were not going well for Vince Lombardi's team. And Lombardi then singled out one big guard for his failure to show out. And that's just football speak for uh, doing your best, hustling, giving it your all, right, to show out. It was hot. It was muggy. It was a day when the coach called his guard aside and let, let this player have it, like, in only a way that a football coach can do that and not get arrested. He said, son, you are a lousy football player. You're not blocking. You're not tackling. You're not showing out. As a matter of fact, it's all over for you. Leave. Get off the field. Go take a shower. Now the, the big guard, he dropped his head. He walked into the locker room. His career was over. His dreams uh, were over. He lost all hope. He didn't know how he was going to provide for his family. But then 45 minutes later when Lombardi walked in, he saw the big guard sitting in front of his locker, still wearing his uniform. The, the player's head kind of bowed over, and he was quietly just reflecting, sobbing quietly. And Coach Lombardi got one look at the player, and he did an about-face. He, he turned right around. He walked over to his football player. He put his arms around his shoulder, and he said this. He said, son, he said, I, I told you the truth. You're a lousy football player. You're not blocking. You're, you're not scheming. You're not doing what you're supposed to, and you're not showing out. However, in all fairness to you, I should have finished the story. He said this then. Inside of you, inside of you, son, there is a great football player, and I'm going to stick by your side until the great football player inside of you has a chance to come out and assert himself. Now, with these words, Jerry Kramer, he straightened up, and he felt a great deal better. Look at that, meathead. Look at him. Right? And as a matter of fact, he felt so much better that he went on to become one of the all-time greats in football. And a few years ago, he was voted the greatest guard in the NFL in the first 50 years of professional football. You see, when, when a person has lost all hope, it helps to know the whole story. It, it really does. It helps to know the whole story. Lombardi knew that Kramer was not doing well. That he was facing a great setback, but Lombardi also knew that there was more to the story. Hope was never lost. Listen, this, this is true of our King Foundry Church. All right, th listen, lean in. Because this is true of the God that we forge our life on, Jesus. Right In the midst of all the trials with the religious leaders and all the floggings and the beatings and the pain, Jesus never gave up. Because he knew the whole story. <laughs> our God, the God that we forge our life on, knew the whole story, Foundry Church. He knew from the beginning to the painful middle to the joy-filled end what was going to happen because the whole story was actually in the Bible. Just look at what it says over and over again and read it for yourself later in John chapter 18 and 19. He, he knew this, right? This was to fulfill the word that, that he had spoken. There was prophecies having to be fulfilled. He knew that, right? This was to fulfill the word earlier on in the Old Testament. It just happened that the scripture in the Old Testament might be fulfilled so that the scripture would be fulfilled. These things happened so that the scripture, his Bible, 
Well, he knew the word of God would be fulfilled. Right over and over again, these horrible things are happening, but Jesus is calm, he's steady, he's steadfast, he's immovable, he's always abounding in the work of his Father because he knew what was coming, Foundry Church. He knew the whole story. <laughs> he even knew that one of his guys on his team would eventually betray him, and he chose them anyways. He gave him a chance. All the, all the things that the disciples saw as hopeless in the story, Jesus saw them as just the next step in the story of the good news, in the story of the gospel. Step by step, Jesus moved toward the cross, taking pains to fulfill every scripture in the Old Testament concerning his death, right down to the details of how he would be handed over. And he did it all without losing hope to prove that the scriptures cannot be broken and that God the Father himself is in control and is sovereign and is Lord above all. Where every painful step led to his death but Jesus knew that's not where the story ends. It doesn't end on the cross of Good Friday. Right? Jesus always knew that what was going to happen, it was going to be painful, that it was going to be heartbreaking, that it was going to be shameful, that it was going to feel like all hope was lost, even to him. But that wasn't the end of the story, Foundry Church. Right? Every, every step of the story was leading to the greatest miracle of all time, Foundry Church. Right, the, the, the plan was never to stay dead in the tomb. The plan was not to stay in the pain of Good Friday when Jesus died on the cross. The plan was always to move into Easter Sunday. The plan was never to stay in the bleak, in the dreary, in the shadow. It was always to restore hope. Not just a finger grip on the end of the rope, but a strength that comes from climbing hand over hand up that rope of hope. That, that's the good news. And, and the story of God has been saying it from the beginning of all time. The story of God's redemption for his people from the Old Testament to the New Testament has always included Easter Sunday. He knew that. A risen Savior. A reigning King. A king who rose to prove the Old Testament promises and warnings were truly from God and that he was who he said he was, Savior of the world, Messiah, Savior, born of a virgin, Lamb of God, fully God, fully man, who lived a perfect life, died a horrible death that he didn't deserve, a death that we deserved. He rose again three days later, walked on this earth for 40 days, gave us a mission, gave us a purpose, he sent us and said, go. And then he went to the right hand of God the Father where he is now, and he's going to return again. That's the gospel. <laughs> King Jesus, a king who rules over sin, a king who rules over the leaders of this world. King Jesus, a king who rules over the pain of death, Foundry Church, a king who rules over the grave. The grave, if you forge your life on God, is not the end. That's what he proved. A king who always and forever will rule over hopelessness. A king that knew the whole story of his his life and death and his resurrection, and he came anyways 
He knew what was going to happen, and he came. Because he wanted to bring us back to life with him. And don't miss this. Right? Zone out. Come back in. Right? Don't miss this. A king who knows your story as well. A king who knows your whole story, the past, the crap of it, the present, the chaos of it, and the hope of your future. It's our king. It's the God we forge our life on. A king who knows your story too. A king who knew about the hurt that we have inside of us. A king that knows about the anger that we have inside of us. A king who knows the thing that we did this last week and we haven't told anyone, but he knows and he still loves us. A king that has come anyways because we have a king that is just He's loving, he's merciful, he's full of grace, and he's a God of hope. We have a king that does, doesn't do good, Foundry Church. We have a king who is good. Not just doing good. He's the author of good. Church, Foundry Church, the death of Jesus looked like the single greatest defeat God's people have ever experienced. No hope. Not even a little bit. Instead of ascending to a throne and conquering his enemies, the promised king, he had been humiliated and he had been crucified. And they're like, what is going on? But at the precise moment when it looked like the veil was not going to be torn, right? The evil was going to be, be supreme and evil was going to win. God was, was wielding every ounce of wickedness to accomplish his great victory. He was going to turn it upside down. And he did it all for you, Foundry Church. That's the good news of Easter. Listen, I'm going to invite the band to come back up here and we're going to continue to celebrate, right? Because those things in your life that you think are hopeless, well, maybe, just lean in, right? Just, just maybe you're looking at the Good Friday part of your story. The death. Or maybe the, the, the Saturday part of your story where it's just waiting, confusion. And right now God is, is wielding every ounce of that wickedness to accomplish his great victory inside of you. It feels like that moment in your past was so shameful, nothing could ever restore you. But Jesus says, I know shame, and I defeated it once, I can bring you out of it. I experienced the worst of it. I hung naked on a cross, but I have the victory over shame. It feels like there is no hope for your marriage. I get it. But Jesus says, I am love. I have victory over what looks like hate. It looks like your life is dead in the grave. But Jesus says, I have victory over death. I will bring you back to life. I have a purpose for you. I have a mission for you. You can attack it by my power. Guys, it looks like the enemy is winning, but Jesus says, this one is mine. He says that about you. He says, this one is mine. They're made in my image. You can't have them. That's what Easter is about. It's about the good news of restored hope 
for a weary world. So what we're going to do is I'm going to invite you to go ahead and stand, and we're going to take communion. And listen, hey, communion is an opportunity for those of us who call Jesus our Lord. If we said, hey, Lord, God, I follow you. I have given you my life. I have forged my life on you, right? I, I, I hear your, your, your story of hope, your story of grace. It's not just here. I've moved it down into my heart, right? I, I've, I've, I've confessed you to be my God. I've, I've repented of forging my life on everything other than you. Right? I, I, I want you to be my God, and I, I meet you in the waters of baptism, and I, I've been forgiven of my sins, and I have this gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if that's you, that's what communion is for, is for you to remember that moment where Jesus bought that opportunity for you by going to the cross. That's what communion is. It's, a, it's an opportunity to remember his broken body. A body that went through so much, was hung on that cross. His blood, which was shed for you. And it says, right, a new covenant which he gives to you. Not that we have to go make sacrifices anymore, that we have to keep all these rules but because we have a loving God who says, I want to have a relationship with you. And since you missed the mark, all right, that's, that's what sin means. It's not a fancy church word. It just means I missed the mark. My life is off track. It's an archery term. Shot my arrow over the target into the mud. And God picks it up. And he puts it right there in the bullseye. All right? So that's what, that's, I mean, communion. It's, it's, it's a weekly opportunity for us to remember if we call Jesus our Lord, what he's done for us. Now you're, you're thinking, Andrew, I've never made him the Lord of my life. I believe it. I have it up here, but I've never kind of gotten it down into my heart. Right, that's, we're also going to do that right now. Right? Some of us need to take steps in our faith. Right? You might be thinking, man, I didn't come prepared to do that. Well, Jesus knew you were going to do it anyways. Right? He knows the whole story. So we have everything you need to say, yeah, I've heard the gospel. It's up here in my head. I want to get it down here. Right? I want to live it out. Right? And that's just like scripture says, it's, 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 it's repenting of forging your life on everything but God. And we've all been there, and we do it weekly, right? That's why we ask for forgiveness weekly, <laughs> daily, every second, right? It's just saying, hey, God, I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be God of my life. And you have the opportunity to repent of your sins, repent of that missing the mark. And as it says in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent of your sins and for, be baptized for the gift of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of your sins. We can do that now. We have swimming suits. We have t-shirts. We have all that jazz. Towels. All right. The baptistry is kind of clean. All right. No, I'm kidding. Cleaned it yesterday. We can do that. We can do that. So as we sing this next song, the band's going to actually just play for a little bit. 
I'm going to invite you to come up if you call Jesus your Lord to take communion. If you just want to come and pray with Tom and Julie for a moment before you take communion, because where it says in 1 Corinthians, we've got to prepare our heart so we're not going through the motions. You can come pray with them. They'll be right over here. Ryan's back there if you just want to kind of slide back there with Ryan in the back row. He's tall. You'll see him. I'll be over here. You can pray with your family. Pray with your friends. Pray by yourself. Sometimes it's just something about coming forward and saying, I just need to be by myself. And I need to pray. And then when you're ready, take communion. Go take a piece of the bread. Dip it into the juice. You take one of the pre-sealed cups. But if if, if you want to believe the gospel, confess Jesus to be your Lord, repent and be baptized, I'll be right over here. We have everything that you need. And as we're singing this next song, you can do that today. So let's just take a moment. Take a seat. You can pray. Come up here with Tom and Julie, Ryan, myself. Just take a moment. Take communion. And then we're going to worship.